Stripping Down Science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Ben Valsler. Hi, Ben. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Now, the perfect solution this week coming up, we've got the perfect answer for people who have a problem with hosepipe bans uh, and also people who are hopeless at watering their house plants because researchers have made a GM plant that can tolerate not being watered for weeks on end. That's all coming up. Also, how doctors are reflecting on using mirrors as a powerful way to take away pain and why chewing on magnolia bark might help to freshen up your breath. At least that's what researchers are telling us. And also this week, we're exploring the mind. We're including here in the scientific reason why certain songs just stick in your head and keep going round. We're also finding out why false memory syndrome, finding out all about it. How do we store memories? Why do we forget things? And why is it that sometimes when we remember things, it's not right? Plus, we'll be looking at the problem of Alzheimer's disease and how researchers suspect that a common virus might be the cause. Thank you, Ben. And also in this week, our question of the week really is a giant leap for mankind. I had a question regarding astronauts. I was wondering whether it would be possible for them if they were stuck in space to project themselves towards Earth and re-enter the atmosphere in only a spacesuit. Could their spacesuits handle re-entry temperatures and how long could this trip possibly take? So can you literally parachute back to Earth from space? Well, the answer's on the way, as well as this week's kitchen science, which is an easy experiment to do, but it really will make your nervous system go mad. Check this out. Oh. Uh, oh, it's weird. It feels really smooth for one hand. And, oh, it's really weird. <laughs> You can find out what that was all about very soon. And if you'd like to join in with this week's programme, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's kick off, as we always do, with a look at what's hot this week in the world of science. And really good news for people like me who cannot remember or are hopeless at watering their houseplants, but also people who have to try and grow crops in arid parts of the world. In other words, places where there's not enough water. And if you believe what the climate change people are saying, and I'm not being disparaging, I'm just saying if you believe that we're going to see the world becoming a much drier place, which is what's being predicted, then an invention of plants that can grow where it's very dry could be very useful. And what Eduardo Blumwald and his colleagues, they're based in California at UC Davis, have done, Ben, and they've published this this week in the journal PNAS, is they've made tobacco plants which, when you add a certain gene to them, they can go without water for days on end. So what they did was to add a gene which is called PST, and this stands for isopentanyl transferase, and it's a gene the plant already has. But what they've done is to switch it on whenever the plant gets stressed. So when you put a plant into conditions where it hasn't got enough water, it gets stressed. And plants respond to that stress by dropping their leaves. And the reason they do that is that you want to reduce the leaf canopy because the fewer leaves a plant has, then the less water it needs. And so it's a way of a plant staying alive but without actually having to consume too much water. And what the researchers thought was, if they can sort of short-circuit that death program and stop a plant dropping its leaves, then they'll get a better crop. So they added this gene to the part of the plant that would normally get switched on when it went into this senescence or death program, and they found that these tobacco plants they modified were very, very hardy. They could not water them for 15 days and they would survive, but control plants that were not genetically modified would all die when they got rewatered. And when they put them on a water-deprived diet, if you like, they got a third of their normal water requirements. They they'd hardly affected their yield at all. They, they 
um, yielded about 8 to 14% less than they would do normally, and that's compared with a 60% drop in yield from the unmodified plants. So it looks really encouraging, and it looks like this could be the way forward in, in really dry parts of the world. Well, that sounds fantastic from our perspective for getting better crops, but from the plant's perspective, if it switches on this gene only when it needs to drop leaves and stay alive, then surely this means that it'll sort of be forced to stay alive in conditions it won't thrive in. You'd have thought so, but what they have found is that it seems to also activate other survival pathways in the plant. So when you turn on this um, isopentanyl transferase, IPT gene, it also turns on antioxidant and various other anti-damage factors in the cell and growth factors that seem to make the cells healthier and so they seem to have this ability to survive under suboptimal conditions. But you didn't ask what I thought you were going to ask, which is, this is in tobacco plants, so that's very nice if you smoke, but what about everybody else? But um, the bottom line there is... uh, what works in one plant is very likely to work in another because in the same way, you know, I even share 60% of my genes as a human and so do you with a banana. <laughs> so you, what, what works in one human is going to work in another. What works in one plant is going to work in another. So they're pretty confident that if you did the same trick in different plant species, then it should actually work. Okay. But the plants that I've seen that are very well adapted to sort of coping without too much water, things like money plants and rubber plants, the cactuses as well, they, um, they have sort of very thick rubbery leaves. Does it not change the leaf in, in that way? No, because what it's doing is affecting the genetic program that's running in the leaf. It doesn't affect the structure. This gene specifically affects the chemical could a composition inside the leaf and which other genes are turned on. So it keeps the leaves from, from artificially ageing. That's how it works. I think. Okay, fantastic. Well, moving on to a totally different subject, which is phantom limb syndrome. We've got several wars raging around the earth at the moment, and a common consequence of that is people treading on landmines and people getting their limbs blown off. And um, there are also people who have problems like diabetes, which can sometimes, unfortunately, mean they have to have an amputation. And it's easy to trivialise this because you think we can get a replacement body part, but there's one thing which you cannot, at the moment, compensate for, which is that 90% of people who lose a body part get something called phantom limb syndrome. And this is really severe and disabling pain in nine people out of ten, which is coming from the part of the body that's missing. It's really bizarre because you think, well, I don't have my lower leg anymore. Why does my lower leg hurt so much? And people wake up in the morning and they almost think they've still got their leg or they've got their leg back again because it's so painful. And it's been a conundrum as to why you should actually have so much pain from a part of the body you no longer have. But what researchers think is going on is that the brain fails to get signals in from that part of the body so it thinks it just can't hear it so it sort of turns up the sensitivity to the sensations coming from that body part including pain sensations so they become much more noticeable now how do you actually treat that problem though well drugs have unilaterally turned out to be not very helpful you have to give people drugs that end up making them anesthetized or feel very dozy or sleepy and people just don't like them but they don't like the pain either And in recent years, a group of researchers in America, including one called V.S. Ramachandran, and now another group who are led by Jack Sow, and they're in Bethesda, Maryland, have been experimenting with mirrors. And this is really cunning. What you do is put the person who has had the amputation in front of a mirror, and you use the mirror to fool the visual system into thinking you've got your missing limb back because what you do is reflect the limb you have got in the mirror and of course the reflection is the mirror image so it's like the other side of your body so you show people and ask people to move the missing body part in the mirror and this makes their brain think they've got the missing body part back again 
And by making people do these movements, you can get ex amazing pain relief because it seems that the brain thinks that the body part's back there, so it's, it turns down the sensitivity to that body part again. Um, they did a simple experiment. They got 22 amputation victims, and they divided them into three groups, and they had one group that were put in front of a mirror and asked to do just what I explained. Then the second group were put in front of the same mirror, but the mirror was covered up, so there was no reflection. They were just asked to pretend they were moving the missing body part. And then a third group were told to just sort of imagine or visualise that they were moving the body part they no longer had. And what they found was the people in front of the mirror, 100% of them got an improvement in just a few trials. The people that were in front of the mirror with the cover on it, 50% of them, their pain got worse. And in the people that were doing the visualisation experiment, 67% ended up with much worse pain. Um, when they then switched the people who are on the covered-up mirror or the visualisation task onto the open mirror watching your body, your reflection, they all improved, and they all got the same improvement as the people who had the open mirror. So, amazing result. That's fantastic. Why would visualising moving your limb, why wouldn't that work? I, I know that you're supposed to think through things before you do them because you can kind of fool your brain into thinking you've got some experience. So why is it that you can't visualise it? And why would that make it get worse? Well, they think that there's a group of nerve cells in the brain called mirror neurons, and these mirror neurons fire off actively when they see somebody else doing a certain manoeuvre or when you yourself do that movement. So what they think happens is that when you see the reflection, it makes these cells fire off, and they then trigger inhibition, or they feed the signals of what's going on into that part of the brain, and that makes it think you've got your missing body part back, so it turns its sensitivity for pain and other sensations down a bit, and this makes it feel much more comfortable for you. So the brain can interpret what's the, the signals coming in from your eyes and use that to override the signals, or rather lack of signals, coming from the limb that you've now lost? That's what they think. There's a very dense input to the brain from the visual system. A third of your brain is just involved in just decoding what you look at. It's a very a sort of brain-hungry sense. But vision is superimposed onto all of the other signals that are coming in. So you've got signals coming in from your arm saying, this is where my arm is in space, these are the movements I'm making. At the same time, you've got vision as you watch your arm moving, you can see where it's going, and that's mapped on and compared with the signals that your arm's telling you where it is. And that's why those funny tricks you can do where you wear glasses that make your vision think your body's in a different place to where it really is. Oh, yeah. That's why they actually work, because then there's a disagreement between the two senses, and it fools you for a while. And that's what I think this is probably plugging into. OK. We covered a story a few weeks ago about, uh, say, if you've lost a hand, there, there seemed to be a way to map the nerves onto your chest... And so you could um, you could move an artificial hand or something using these mapped nerves. So would this mean that you could also defeat phantom limb pain by convincing your body to look for a different set of nerves where you are getting a normal response? Um, interesting thought. Um, I don't think anyone's actually looked at that, but but it might be worth having a look look for that in the future. Okay. One other thing I wanted to talk about was, I, I know you're fond of the old bit of chewing gum. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people are very worried about um, if they've got a fresh mouth and fresh breath. And people are often looking for ways to freshen up the mouth, freshen up your breath. And there's lots of different things you can spend money on to do this. But a group of researchers, they're actually based at Wrigley's, the chewing gum manufacturers, but they published a paper this week in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Sciences, and they've been looking at magnolia bark. And it turns out that in the bark of magnolia are various chemicals, including two called magnolol and honochiol. And these are really effective. In fact, they're like bleach. They kill 99.9% .9 of the bugs in your mouth that can cause tooth decay and also make your breath smelly. And that was done in the dish. So they thought, what happens if we really try this chemical in people? So they made some chewing gum and they also made some mints, 
which they had impregnated with this chemical, and they gave it to nine volunteers who worked at the Wrigley's factory, and they measured saliva and cultured bacteria from it at various times after eating the chewing gum or the mints to see how it affected the growth of bacteria. And what they found was that with the, with the mints, when people started uh, eating them, after 30 minutes of eating one of these mints, the number of bacteria in the mouth had dropped by 60%, and then after an hour it was still a third lower than people who hadn't eaten one of these mints. So it was killing lots of these bacteria. And with the chewing gum, there was a big drop. It was down by 40 50% after 40 minutes. So it looks like this stuff is really very effective. And when they compared that with just normal chewing gum, normal chewing gum just reduced things by bacteria by about 18%, and mints even increased the level of bacteria by 50% if they just had sugar in them. So it looks like this could be a very clever way to clean up your mouth, but using something natural. That sounds really good. Why would, eat, why would eating a mint increase the amount of bacteria? Well, the mints have got sugar in them, and that makes the bacteria grow more. Um, but if you put this stuff in, it kills the bacteria, and then the sugar gets washed away by the saliva, because you want as much saliva as possible. And a major problem with previous breath fresheners and things is that, well, in one case, triclosan, which you might remember was touted as really good for fresh breath and all that kind of stuff, turns out it reacts with chlorine in drinking water, and that can make toxic substances, which is bad for you. So that's why that one's fallen out of favour. Then there's chlorhexidine, which is an antiseptic. It's in some of the rubs that you can get to clean up your hands in hospital. Okay. Um, that one stains teeth, so that's not so good. And then there are these alcohol-based um, mouthwashes, but they dry your mouth out, get rid of the saliva. So, in fact, it makes the bugs grow more, so they can cause rebound halitosis, so they're not very good either. So you really want a perfect balance of lots and lots of saliva and a little bit of antiseptic in there. I would guess so, but the reason this is good is because this is a natural chemical which, as far as they know, does not harm human cells. So it's, you're, you're actually not doing things which, which can be harmful. Okay. Tis the Naked Scientist with Chris and Ben, and we're talking this week about how the brain works, how the mind works. In a while, we'll be discussing why those songs get inside your head and keep going round forever. What actually physically causes that? We'll also be finding out what causes memory, how memories are actually recalled, and why that sometimes goes wrong. Plus, on the way, we've got a very interesting experiment that will send your nervous system going absolutely mad. But in the meantime, if you have any questions for us here on The Naked Scientist, then you can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Well, it's December now, we're heading up to Christmas, and this time of year, town centres fill up with people looking really stressed, hunting for the best, the most perfect Christmas present they can find. So what better way to distract yourself from hunting for a bargain than by fooling your senses with a bit of kitchen science? Dave and I hit the streets. For Kitchen Science this week, we've come out of the kitchen and into the streets, and we're here at Market Square with a fantastic experiment about fooling your senses. So, Dave, what do people need to try this experiment out? To do this experiment, all you need is some carpet, ideally fairly rough carpet, something really smooth, so a nice slippery, flat piece of plastic, and some paper. And what do we need people to do with them? Well, what you do is you take one hand and rub it on the carpet, one hand and rub it on the really smooth piece of plastic. Do this about 10 or 15 times and take both of them and rub it on the paper together and feel if both hands feel the paper to be the same. OK, so with one hand you should rub on a rough surface like a carpet, with the other hand you should rub on a smooth surface like a plastic tray or perhaps a mirror, something really smooth. And then, after a while, rub both hands on one sheet of paper and just let us know if the paper feels the same to both hands. Later on, we're going to flag down a couple of shoppers and distract them from their Christmas shopping to do this experiment and let you know what happens to them. So we'll catch up with you later on. 
So there you go. Give it a go at home. Rub the fingers of one hand on something rough like a carpet and on the other hand on something smooth. Uh, you can use a plastic tray, a mirror, if you have a glass top table, anything like that. And then... After a little while, rub them both on the same piece of paper. And if you do have a strange experience, call in and let us know. Thank you very much, Ben. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and with Ben Vowsler. And if you have any science questions for us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, sadly, dementia is a disease which is found in increasing numbers of people these days, and it shows itself in lots of different forms, from what's called mild cognitive impairment, which affects memory and language, to more ruthless things such as full-blown Alzheimer's disease, which can affect daily lifestyle very severely. Well, scientists have been looking into Alzheimer's disease for decades and trying to figure out just why it happens. And there's one group based at the University of Manchester that have uncovered one aspect of it that could lead to its prevention. And we sent Mira to find out more. Alzheimer's is a form of senile dementia, and it's very common. In fact, one person in five over the age of 80 develops the condition, which causes memory loss, sleep disturbance and personality changes. Patients with the disease show accumulations in their brain of an abnormal protein called beta amyloid, and this is thought to be toxic to nerve cells, triggering the disease. But scientists still don't understand exactly what causes the build-up of this pathological protein in the first place. In recent years, they've shown that the disease does have a genetic basis, but they also suspect that there might be another player involved, and that's the herpes simplex virus, or HSV. Now, surprising as it sounds, 80% of us are infected with this virus, which usually causes cold sores. But what's unusual about HSV is that once you're infected, the virus remains in your body for life. It hides inside nerve cells as a tiny piece of DNA, which can periodically reawaken to control the production of new virus particles that then leave the nerve to produce infectious cold sores. But occasionally, the virus can also invade the brain, causing a condition known as encephalitis, and Professor Ruth Itzaki from Manchester University thinks that this might provide us with a clue to how herpes simplex is linked to Alzheimer's. The main reason was because in a very serious, rare, luckily, illness called herpes simplex encephalitis, the virus destroys the same regions as those that are mainly affected in Alzheimer's disease. And another point is that once people get infected, it stays in the body throughout life, so it's in a position possibly to do harm in older age. Well, when it comes to herpes simplex virus, how does that actually get into our body? How does it affect our body and then how does it work? I think the main route it takes is it's transmitted in saliva and probably kissing and so on. Infants are kissed often. It probably then enters the body and travels in, uh, eventually lands up in what's called the peripheral nervous system, which is the part of the nervous system other than the brain and the spinal cord, and it stays there for life. Once it's in the body, though, what then causes it to become active then? It's thought that it reactivates under conditions of stress or when the immune system is suppressed. A number of causes make it reactivate, but I should say that when it reactivates, it doesn't necessarily cause any harm in the people at all. When research started being done into this connection, what was found to connect them? The first bit of evidence was when we, we looked for the virus to find if it was present in brain, the viral DNA, and we found that it certainly is present in a high proportion of elderly people, and that uh, led us to continue with the work. Having found the virus was present in brain, we used other methods which suggested that it had been possibly active in brain, and not active just once, but maybe recurrently. So we think it might cause a sort of very mild type of disease like encephalitis. After that, we discovered that it looks as if there's an association between the virus in brain and a particular genetic factor, and it's the two together that we think cause the disease in about 60% of Alzheimer patients. 
And what's the genetic factor that you thought to link them? It's the type 4 form, the so-called allele, of a gene called apolipoprotein E, uh, which codes for a protein which is involved with carrying lipids, fats, in blood and in the brain. How is this gene thought to work in order to help aid herpes and the formation of Alzheimer's? We think it affects the degree of damage. It may be that there's earlier entry of the virus into brain, but we think the main effect is that it affects the extent of damage there. So you found this connection now. What next? Well, we've recently been finding, rather than I think a major finding, that it looks as if the virus does actually cause the formation or increased formation of a abnormal protein called beta amyloid which is present it's the main component of the one of the abnormal features of alzheimer's disease brain and we find say the virus virus infection in- increases that in cells in culture and in mouse brain it also we found even more strikingly in the sections of human brain post-mortem that it's located within these structures and so we think this strongly implicates it in their formation In the grand scheme of things, is this going to hopefully lead to some kind of treatment? I've heard things about a possible vaccine. Is that likely? Uh, It is possible in the future, but at the moment there's no vaccine for this particular virus. It's something that would have to be developed and it would involve a very lengthy clinical trial because people would have to wait many, many decades to see if people do or do not develop the disease when they've been vaccinated. What is much more imminent and practical at the moment will be antiviral treatment, which is available fairly cheap and could be used with rather minimal side effects. And it would be good because at the moment there's no real treatment, no effective treatment against Alzheimer's. So Ruth's team have found further evidence connecting herpes simplex virus to the onset of Alzheimer's disease. But as she mentioned, there are still many other connections to be found. Teams of scientists across the globe are working in this field, hoping to find either a treatment or preventative measure, as such a large percentage of our population are affected by this form of dementia. That was Ruth Itzaki talking to Mira about the finding that herpes simplex virus could increase the formation of beta amyloid protein plaques in the brain. And this is a known cause of Alzheimer's disease. More on Alzheimer's coming up shortly because we'll be talking in a second to Peter Nestor, who is a researcher at Cambridge University, and he's looking at how Alzheimer's actually affects the structure of the brain. We'll be joining him shortly. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Ben. If you have any questions, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. David in Harlow says he's got two radio-controlled speaking clocks they're identical but uh two year one's two years older than the other but now they speak at different times why is that can anyone help me with this because i haven't got a clue on that one and sue in Halstead, i'm a bit baffled she says she works in childcare and she's wiped lots of bottoms and is there a difference between bums because it always seems to be harder to wipe boys i reckon we're just better at making a mess ben it could well be yeah Jill is in Point Clare. Hello, Jill. What would Hello. you like to talk about? Um, yes, my mother had a, a leg amputated before she died, and I know she suffered greatly with um, phantom pains. And I was interested because um, the biggest cause of blindness is diabetes. And I know a lot of blind people, although I'm blind, I'm not a diabetic, but I know a lot of blind people um, do have amputations through diabetes. And I just wondered how this new experiment that you, you've been talking about would affect um, blind people with, with amputations. I think that's an amazing point that you've made. I think it's one which unfortunately hasn't been considered in the present research and you're absolutely right. Diabetes is a leading cause of sight loss in countries like this one and unfortunately because the trial that they did involved being able to see it would mean that people who had blindness with diabetes and had had an amputation 
would be a have, having a problem with doing this. So mm. it's, it would be difficult. Yeah. One would therefore have to think, is there another way to do what they did? Yeah. Um, it might be that there are ways of using various nerve stimulation to fool the brain into getting signals mm. from the missing body part. And that's definitely possible mm. because a lot of the nerves that uh, supplied the missing body part, the stumps of those nerves may still be there. So it might be mm. possible to do that instead. I'll actually try and find out from blind people because I do edit a couple of tape, national tape magazines. I'll actually try and find out from those people that you know have had amputations if mm. they do suffer phantom pain. I think it's almost certain that they will mm. um, but unfortunately this technique wouldn't work to no. help them at the moment. It's no. whether or not someone can come up with another way of, mm. of doing what the people with their mirrors were doing and people who could see. But it's a brilliant mm. point. Thank you for joining okay, us. It's thank wonderful you. to have you on the show, Jill. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information get online at nakedscientists.com and we're very fortunate to be joined now by Dr Peter Nestor. He is from Cambridge University and he works on mild cognitive impairment and also specialises in Alzheimer's, investigating what brain processes occur to give someone the disease in the first place and how we can actually try and prevent it. Hello, Peter. Hi. So if I was to do a brain scan on someone who had Alzheimer's disease, what would I see? Well, it depends on the kind of brain scan. Um, if you do a structural brain scan, such as a, a CAT scan or an MRI scan, uh, the answer can be not very much. There's shrinkage of the brain, and particularly certain areas such as the hippocampi. Um, however, our brains shrink as we get older, so it, it's not such a great discriminator. If you do a functional brain scan, such as a, a PET scan, positron emission tomography, uh, and look at brain metabolism, then you typically see uh, reduced brain metabolism in areas of what we call um, polymodal association cortex, so particularly around the back of the temporal lobes and parietal lobes. And what do those bits of the brain do? Uh, lots of different things. Um, interestingly, uh, given that uh, the key deficit is memory impairment or amnesia with Alzheimer's, those particular areas that we see easily on the brain scan are not so important for um, memory. Um, but other areas that are important for memory, such as the hippocampus and an area we've been doing a lot of work on called the posterior cingulate cortex, are important for memory. And of those, the posterior cingulate seems to be the one that becomes dysfunctional first of all in the, at the start of the illness. There are lots of different diseases, though, that constitute senile dementia, aren't there? So, yes, absolutely. Um, we, we tend to use an umbrella term and say this person's got dementia, or, mm. or lots of people say this person's got Alzheimer's, but can you see differences between these different diseases on your scans? Yeah, yeah, you can. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, dementia is just the generic term for losing mental abilities, and obviously that can be due to all sorts of pathological processes of which Alzheimer's is the most common. Uh, but other common uh, dementias include what's called dementia with Lewy bodies or frontotemporal dementia. And they tend to have different signatures in terms of um, the, the location, the topography, if you like, of the, um, of the damage in the brain. And presumably, as we get better at spotting these diseases early and come up with treatments, it will become very important to be able to discriminate between them because you can put someone on a certain drug and therefore, if you know what the disease is in the first place, you can get the drug right and yeah. slow the disease down. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's a very important point because obviously, and, and it's a very important point for drug trial research because uh, obviously one doesn't want to include people with the wrong kind of pathology if your therapeutic agent that you're experimenting with has a, is thought to work on a particular pathological pathway. So having people with the wrong kind of dementia syndrome in, in the trial is, is a big problem. So that's a, a major kind of incentive to, to work at the moment. 
We've mentioned some of the symptoms and signs of Alzheimer's disease so far, um, but what are the cardinal features that people who are going to get the disease tend to show? Well, the hallmark is um, memory impairment, forgetfulness, um, which brings up this um, term you mentioned earlier, mild cognitive impairment, which is just isolated memory impairment is, is the definition of that term. Um, and there's a sort of a prodrome for, which can last for many years where someone has memory problems without having um, impairments in other mental abilities such as language or visuospatial abilities and so on. Um, but ultimately those other things do catch up with the patient. So uh, as, as the disease progresses, one, one gets impairments in all mental abilities, but for a long time it's focused just on memory. So as we become better at working out what these things are and who's got what disease, what are we going to do about trying to treat people? Are we at any stage yet where we can intervene in these disorders? Well, there's nothing uh, that's available yet uh, as a treatment um, that's been proven to work, but there are a number of um, trials underway. And, I mean, uh, I heard mentioned before in the previous article about vaccines, and one um, strategy that has been tried is to give a vaccine against those amyloid deposits, the pathology in the brain. And the jury's still out on that. It, it, uh, the first trial was stopped because of, uh, of one or two people had some quite severe side effects from it. But it's not really clear yet whether it may actually be helpful. So that, that's one. But there are a lot, lots of others that are trying to modify the, the sort of the molecular pathology, if you like. Don't some of the drugs try to correct the chemical imbalance that you get in the brain? Because as far as we know, people who develop Alzheimer's disease, lose signalling from a chemical called acetylcholine and yeah. many of these drugs that you get given seem to boost that drug in the brain and can make people improve for a while. Yeah, that, it's an interesting story, acetylcholine. Uh, um, that is the only drug that we have um, a, as a sort of a, a treatment for Alzheimer's at the moment, but it's not a disease-modifying treatment. It's, it's replacing the, the um, our cholinergic activity. Um, interestingly, though, it's been rather disappointing as a symptomatic treatment. Mo most people do find that it helps a little bit, but it doesn't dramatically restore memory or anything like that. And interestingly, uh, the work that was done that showed that there was a cholinergic deficit in Alzheimer's disease over 25 years ago was done on end-stage disease. It was done on post-mortem um, brains of people who died at the end of the illness, and that showed the deficit. Um, recent evidence suggests that it's probably not a major feature of the very early um, um, clinical course of the illness. So by putting people on drugs that affect that, we might be barking up the wrong tree totally. Well, it's a symptomatic treatment, so um, it's... It, it's, um, you know, it, it could be if, if someone doesn't have that deficit. But, you know, given that it's a symptomatic treatment, you're trying to improve someone's symptoms, you can always give it a go, and if it doesn't work, you can stop it again. Interestingly, though, another condition related to Parkinson's disease called dementia with Lewy bodies turns out to have a much more profound cholinergic deficit early on in the illness, and um, uh, that condition seems to respond uh, much more dramatically to cholinesterase inhibitors than does Alzheimer's disease. It sort of flies in the face of the fact that haven't the government been quite difficult to persuade that these drugs are good for people who have this condition? I know that people who care for people who have these conditions find these drugs very helpful. 
Yeah. Um, well, in the case of Lewy body disease, it, it's disappointing that they haven't looked at that one because I think there is um, enough evidence now to, to say that that's um, very useful. And certainly I know from my own practice of seeing patients that uh, it, can, it can very significantly help. I guess with regard to the, 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 the bigger issue of Alzheimer's disease, um, it, one of the other problems we have is how does one measure accurately that there's been an improvement and um, I think one of the problems in the trials that the government have, have used for evidence is that they've used fairly old and antiquated methods of measuring cognition and um, uh, sometimes those um, measures are, are somewhat at odds with what the actual families report that they do see some improvement but but that said it, it, it has to be acknowledged that the um, improvements are not dramatic you know that it, it's a little bit of an improvement. And just to finish off, Peter, um, what do you think the long-term effects are going to be here in terms of we've got an ageing population. At the moment, one person in five roughly gets Alzheimer's disease, but there's going to be a hell of a lot more people over the age of 80 um, who are therefore in that risk group before too long. What's going to, co- what's going to happen? Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge problem and a, and a huge financial problem, to say nothing of the obvious immense distress it causes to families and, and patients. Um, but yes, it, it, as the population ages, the prevalence is going to go up and up. And it, already um, it's estimated in the United States that Alzheimer's disease costs more than all of cancer combined if you factor in all the indirect costs, such as needing to look after people, people needing to stop working, to stay at home and care for someone, all of that kind of thing. So yeah, it's an enormous potential problem for the future. Thank you very much, Peter. That's Peter Nestor, who is from Cambridge University, talking to us about Alzheimer's disease. It is The Naked Scientist, and if you'd like to give us any questions about Alzheimer's disease, how the brain works, or just any science questions in general, in a second, for instance, we're going to be finding out why you get songs stuck in your head. You can't get them out again. You find yourself singing things incessantly. What causes that? We'll be finding out shortly. And also, we'll be finding out how memories work and what false memories are. So if you want to join us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. This is The Naked Scientist, and as Chris said, you're welcome to email in with any questions. And We've got a fantastic question here from Michael Stevens, and he said that he loves the show and he pretty much listens to all of our podcasts, old and new, every day when he walks his dog, which uh, apparently makes it much more enjoyable, which doesn't say a lot for his dog. But uh, his question is to do... Does the dog listen? (laughs) I would hope so. I'm sure a dog can get a lot out of The Naked Scientist. Um, We don't ever get questions from dogs, though. Um, But his question is to do with peripheral nerves, so this is your peripheral nerves nervous system and he said he went to see one of the plasticized human exhibits this is where they get all of your organs or, or a particular system like your nervous system or your blood system and they effectively fill it with plastic so you're left with a model of a human system and uh, he was amazed at the number of peripheral nerves there actually are in the body and he thought that any injury could easily cut through some of these nerves and he has always been told that nerves can't regenerate so he wants to know if all of these little injuries can damage a nerve then how do nerves Have you got any nervous system left? I've got a similar question. It's, this is from Orr, um, O-R. He says uh, he is listening where in, he, in Jerusalem, Israel. He's a chemistry student at the Hebrew University there. And he says he very much enjoys the programme. He says that three months ago he underwent surgery to fix a broken collarbone and since then an area just under the surgery site on his skin has become numb. And he said... 
Um, my doctor's told me it's normal and that I'll regain sensation there in a few months. But in, And indeed it is coming back slowly but surely. But I thought that nerve damage was permanent and it wasn't possible to regenerate nerves and therefore get sensation back. Well, I've got good news for both those people, which is that the nervous system is divided into two camps. There is the central nervous system, which is your brain and your spinal cord, and then there's the peripheral nervous system, which is everything else. And the central nervous system, the brain and spinal cord, if you injure that, as far as we know, is permanent at the moment. The nerve cells may die, they may not die, but they certainly don't reconnect with where they should connect. So that stops signals getting through, which is why you get problems with paralysis or loss of sensation, depending upon where the the damage is. And that's why stroke is so disabling. But in the skin, the nerve cells there seem to be able to survive. And they also seem to be able to relocate their targets. They can grow back to where they should have gone. In the first place, they reconnect with, say, if it was a muscle they were supposed to be supplying, they'll reconnect with their muscle. If it was a patch of skin, they can branch out and resupply the skin. So you do get sensation back. And nerves grow quite slowly, probably a couple of millimetres a day. So if you've got a big injury, the length of your arm, it can take a few weeks before the nerves will get all the way back to your arm. And And the sensation may not be absolutely perfect because some nerve cells might die, but you should get coverage of all of the skin back afterwards. So they actually hunt out the original other half of the nerve they attached to rather than just you know attaching to any old nerve nearby that's right what happens is that the nerve when you break the nerve the um, actual cell inside it's just one massive long cell and the distal bit the bit downstream of the cut site will degenerate okay and it retracts and forms this little lump bulb And this then grows back along the original path of the nerve. So it uses the original pathway of the nerve as a guide, rather like a motorway with cones. It follows the cones and lays down a new road surface, which is the nerve, and it gets back to where it was supposed to attach, and and the distal site it was supposed to attach to switches on various markers so it can recognise it, and off it goes. Fantastic. Well, going from nerves to something that really gets on your nerves. Have you ever had a song stuck in your head and you just can't shift it? Kylie e- Minogue can't get you out of my head. That yeah. sort of thing, that exactly. Yeah. At Spice Girls, I tend to get. Even if you don't like it, it's just stuck in your head. Well, this week, Mira has been finding out why this happens and just how music manages to worm its way into your head. I'm sure you've all been walking along, say, to the shops or to the park and found you're humming a song. It could be either the latest track by your favourite band or a song that reminds you of someone or something. And not only is this song currently in your head, but you soon realise that you've been humming it all day, possibly even all week. Well, to find out why songs, and, well, why music, stays in our memory so easily, I spoke to Professor Daniel Leverton from McGill University in Montreal, who's not only an expert in the field of music perception, but he's also an ex-recording engineer and record producer. So to start with, I had to ask, why do our brains remember music so easily? In the jargon of of our field, I would characterize it as being constituted of multiply redundant or reinforcing cues. What I mean by that is that if you're trying to remember the words, there are a lot of things that constrain them. Uh, You've got the accent structure, the melody. You've got a rhyming scheme. There are only certain words that will fit at the end of a line. Uh, And in terms of melody, you may not remember all of the notes of a melody, but if you remember that the melody starts low and it goes high and it might be going, you know, and you know, and you got to get from one to the other, and there's only certain notes that it could be. What we've learned about memory is that there's a certain aspect of human memory that's illusory. You don't remember every detail of everything, but you construct some of the details at the moment of recollection. So you fill in information that isn't actually in your memory with a plausible substitute, and this happens all the time in music. 
What about those irritating songs that stay in your head no matter how hard you try to throw them out? You know the ones I mean. There's a word for this. They're called earworms. Like those little uh, insects, the earwig that burrows in your ear canal and then you can't get it out. These songs tend to be simple melodically and rhythmically. They tend to be the kinds of songs that the popular radio stations play and overplay. And so they get stuck in there and you just can't get them out. And, you know, most people aren't running around with Stravinsky in there. They're, they're running around with Who Let the Dogs Out, or what I've had stuck in my head for the last week is Crazy by Patsy Cline. Crazy isn't a bad song to get stuck in your head. I get far more annoying things, like the Flintstones theme. And can you imagine how irritating that is, playing as a broken record in your head all day long? So I had to ask him if there was a cure. There absolutely is. You just think of another irritating song and it pushes the first one out. Great. That's not really a cure, though, is it? Well, if these earworms insist on staying in our heads, please tell me they serve at least some kind of purpose. This is a key to the evolutionary origins of music. The idea is that if a song gets stuck in your head, maybe it had some evolutionary reason to do so. And some of the anthropologists I've spoken to have told me that in certain societies, this is a part of courtship. A young boy will sing a song to a young girl, And the idea is the song is supposed to get stuck in her head so that when he's away on the hunt, she'll remember him. They can encounter each other in the reeds, for example, and he can whistle the song and she'll know it's him and uh, they can go off and do whatever they do. Hmm. So to woo your next potential partner, seems you should compose and sing them the most irritating song you can come up with. An infallible plan, I'm sure. Well, that was Daniel Levitin talking to Mira about earworms, which sound awful, really. Um, But next time you find an irritating song, or worse, a mobile phone ringtone stuck in your head, then just remember that once this would have helped you find true love. I like the bit where he said, um, it's easy to get rid of, you just think of another one. (laughs) They are really annoying, aren't they? Very much so, yeah. It's good to know we've got an answer. Anyway, I've got a quick question. Uh, Mary and Corby said, had a friend who was diagnosed with glaucoma by the optician. What is it and how do you get it? Well, the answer to this, Mary, is it's not something you can catch, fortunately. Glaucoma seems to run in families. It's caused by a raised pressure inside the eye because at the front of the eye you produce fluid and this fluid fills the front of the eye and it then gets reabsorbed further back in the eye and so the fluid is continuously being replenished. But sometimes in people with glaucoma, they don't reabsorb the fluid properly and so the pressure can go up. And this puts pressure on the retina, the part of the eye that converts light into nerve signals that the brain can understand. And over time, this can damage the retina. And in particular, it damages the part of the eye called the optic nerve. And all of the information that the retina sends to the brain, it does so along the optic nerve. There's about a million nerve fibres in the optic nerve on each side. And they run through this structure called the optic disc at the back of the eyeball. And you can see this. If you look in people's eyes who have raised pressure like this, you can see the changes that are very characteristic in this optic disc. And if you reduce the pressure with drugs, then what this does is it reduces the severity of those changes. And if you catch it early and take drugs, you can prevent any damage from happening. Depending upon when you catch it, then there can be more or less damage to the eye. Because as we were saying about the brain not regenerating itself, The optic nerve is part of your central nervous system. So if you damage the central nervous system, then it doesn't grow back. So if you lose a connection or some of the nerve fibres from your retina to your brain, then you do lose acuity, the ability to see as sharply as you once did. But the longer the problem goes on, the worse it can be. So if you have had a family history of glaucoma, then it's worth going and seeing an optician just to get checked out to make sure that you haven't actually got it. 
Anyway, that's a great question. Thank you very much. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Ben, and we're going to be joined now by James Ost, and he's from Portsmouth University, and he works on memory. Hello, James. Hello, good evening. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. My pleasure. Your, your speciality is false memory, but mm-hmm. before we get on to false memory, let's talk about true memory. Mm-hmm. What actually is memory, and how does it work? Well, that's a um, rather large question. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, essentially, there, there are a number of kind of ways you can think about memory. Some people think about it as a, a kind of store in our head where we where we put facts and, and things to retrieve them at a later date, much like you'd kind of put, put books in a library, if you like. Um, other people think of memory more as a, a sort of tool we use to help uh, get us around the world. So... Um, we use kind of memories as as sort of stories to remind us um, of how uh, how we got where we are and where we're kind of going next. So there are kind of a number of different ways uh, that psychologists certainly think about about kind of memory anyway. So it's it's not a there's not a kind of clear answer to that one, I'm afraid. So in sort of put simply, mm. you take information into your brain and mm. it's in some way converted into connections between nerve cells. You can think of it like that. That would be certainly one one way of doing. It. That's a very kind of reductionist kind of level. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And when you get the memory back, effectively those nerve cells, are, are they recreating or replaying in your brain the sensation that the original experience would have given you? Is that mm-hmm. how it works? Uh, no, no. That's, again, that's a very kind of popular view. It's a, that's kind of referred to as a video player analogy. Okay? Um, and in some cases, say if you're retrieving facts or you know, things you've rehearsed an awful lot, then, yeah, indeed, you, it would be like the kind of nerves replaying, if you like. Um, but for kind of more complex things like sort of autobiographical memory, memory for episodes in your life and things like this, um, we know that memory isn't a literal replay at all. And in fact, as your uh, previous uh, guest was speaking about in terms of memory, uh, in terms of music and memory, um, we, we know that memory is a kind of reconstructive process and we sort of fill in lots of kind of gaps as we go along. So, How do you know what we're filling in? Um, because that's a really interesting mm. point, isn't it? Mm. People think that their memory is infallible. A lot, a lot of people think their memory is infallible. Mm. And, and we think, this is what I remember. I remember it, so it must be true. Mm. How do you work out how much the brain's filling in the gaps for you? you basically have no idea. There's no kind of clear way of knowing. Psychologists at the moment are kind of looking at a number of techniques to see if there are any, if you like, kind of clear markers of what one might call true recall versus what one might call false recall. Okay? Um, but even at, the kind of, even at that kind of psychophysiological kind of cellular level, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to distinguish these things. People have um, looked at people remembering real things and people remembering imagined things and essentially measured their brain waves, if you like, and, and compared the two. And really, any, any differences are very, very short-lived and disappear within a matter of kind of seconds. So. so how do you define a false memory then? Well, again, a number of kind of takes on that, right? The, uh, the term actually false memory was, was first kind of coined by one of the forefathers of uh, psychology, an American guy called William James, way back in uh, 1890. And he was basically uh, making the observation that a lot of us will be able to relate to that uh, memories kind of go wrong. You know, we forget where we put our car keys, so forth and so forth and so forth. Um, But real contemporary interest in that uh, phrase, false memory, has only kind of really come about in the last 20, 25 years or so in relation to kind of cases of uh, recovered memories of, of kind of abuse and trauma in childhood and things like that. So... There was quite an interesting study I read, though, James, um, back about a year ago or so, and scientists in America got a bunch of students and got them to fill in some questionnaire and then said they were going to give them feedback on what they got from the questionnaire. And then they, then they invented the feedback and they gave the same feedback to every single student and told them when they were little, 
some strawberry ice cream and yeah, made them violently yeah. sick. And then they retested them later. Yeah. And, and then a large number who previously had not reported any kind of allergy to strawberry mm. ice cream then said that mm. strawberry ice cream made them ill. So it was almost mm. like the researchers had planted a false memory. How does that happen? Oh, well, again, that's really interesting stuff. And that, that kind of research you're referring to is really at the kind of forefront uh, of research uh, in this field at the moment. But uh, how does it happen? Well, again, what we know is that memory is a kind of constructive process. Okay, It's not just like pressing play on your DVD and everything kind of coming back. So when we're asked to remember something, essentially, we kind of take information that we do have to hand, you know, bits of true memory, bits of things we've seen, bits of things people have told us, and we weave these all into a kind of a narrative, a memory, if you like, okay? And so when people suggest things, like in the study you're referring to, that uh, as a kid you got sick using uh, eating kind of strawberry yoghurt, yeah, this partly gets kind of woven into your kind of uh, your autobiographical memory, if you like, your narrative. And you may, there is research that's shown that you know people are more likely to avoid strawberry yogurt, as, you know, after having received such suggestion. But again, that, I say the research is in its infancy. It's very interesting stuff. And just to finish off, James, mm-hmm. can you just tell us how does this impact on, say, criminal proceedings? How do we know that someone's account in court is reliable? Right. Uh, I mean, that really is the kind of the, the, the $64 million question. I think uh, there's a lot of work at the moment, uh, that certainly over the last sort of five, six years, on these DNA exoneration cases. Okay? And these are people, uh, a lot of them on death row in America, uh, you know, on death row for having committed certain crimes. Uh, later, subsequently, it turns out that DNA evidence shown they could not possibly have committed the crime that they're on death row for. Um, and researchers have looked back at those cases and found that in 80% of those cases of DNA exoneration, the, the most convincing piece of evidence uh, to the jury and the judge and everyone was a faulty or mistaken eyewitness testimony. That is someone saying, yeah, it was definitely, it was James, he was there, that's the, that's the kind of fella. So, I mean, these kind of memory errors... Uh, like forgetting your keys and, and forgetting where you park your car and all these kind of things really are the minor ones. They they really do kind of range on a on a full spectrum all the way up to these kind of cases of people being you know wrongfully imprisoned for things they haven't done. So it really is a kind of important issue to yeah. It really does have uh, quite important implications. Which is why we should be looking at. It. Thank you very much. That was James Oss, and he's from the University of Portsmouth. And now it's time to join Diana O'Carroll for this week's question, which is quite literally out of this world. Hello and welcome to Question of the Week with the Naked Scientists, with possibly the biggest leap for mankind. Hello, my name's Paul Kingston, calling from the Sunshine Coast, Queensland, Australia. I had a question regarding astronauts. I was wondering whether it would be possible for themselves stuck in space to project themselves towards Earth and re-enter the atmosphere in only a spacesuit. Could their spacesuits handle re-entry temperatures and how long could this trip possibly take? Could we dispense with the expensive shuttle? I spoke to Open University space scientist Phil Rosenberg, who worked with the team that landed the Huygens probe on Titan, to find out more. OK, so our astronaut bails out of his rocket. What would happen then? Well, assuming he's in orbit around the Earth, actually not a lot, because both the astronaut and the rocket are in orbit around the Earth, travelling about 11 kilometres a second or 24,000 miles an hour. They basically both orbit together. And if the atmosphere there was a vacuum, if there was no atmosphere at all, then that would mean that the astronaut would essentially stay in orbit forever. Now, as it happens, there's a little bit of atmosphere up there, just a tiny amount, about a 1,000 trillion trillion times thinner atmosphere than there is at the surface of the Earth. And that tiny amount of atmosphere would cause a small drag on the astronaut. And as time went on, that drag would slow the astronaut down. As he slowed down, he would start to descend until eventually the atmosphere was thick enough that he could just fall to Earth. Now, unfortunately... It's not great news for this astronaut because the atmosphere is so thin, it would actually take him probably about a year to get slow enough that he would just fall to Earth. 
and it gets even worse. Because the astronaut's travelling so quickly, as I said, 24,000 miles per hour, as he started to slow down and get into thicker atmosphere, the friction caused by the drag would heat him up and essentially he would be uh, burnt up as he re-entered the atmosphere. In order to avoid that, essentially what you'd have to do is slow yourself down from that 24,000 miles an hour down to essentially zero. Even the shuttle can't do that at the moment. The shuttle has to use special thermal coating on the underneath of it to re-enter the atmosphere. And as it hits the atmosphere, it's travelling at 17,000 miles an hour. So even the shuttle can't slow itself down enough. Having said that, a little astronaut is a little bit lighter than the uh, shuttle. So a decent-sized rocket engine will probably be able to slow him down enough. But unfortunately, most astronauts aren't equipped with such devices. So unfortunately for our stranded astronaut, I think it's pretty close to impossible, or at least very, very difficult to design a spacesuit that will be able to survive re-entry. I think our astronaut's going to need some sort of escape pod or some sort of space vehicle in order to get back down from space to the Earth and survive the really difficult conditions that are involved in that. So it's pretty tricky for an astronaut to slow down enough to enter the atmosphere without being flambéed. So what would the jump be like once the optimum velocity was achieved? I asked parachuting record holder Cheryl Stearns. The whole thing is you could do this if you're only going to maybe 110, 130,000 feet. You know, that's a project that I'm working on right now. But I'm not re-entering into the atmosphere. You can free fall from that altitude, and you're going to get up to a speed of 900 miles per hour, but you will not feel that speed because of the atmosphere is so thin. You'd only feel maybe 150 miles per hour of actual wind resistance against your body. And the side core of your suit would only be maybe 200 degrees temperature with the friction that you have up there in the thin air. So, yes, that is possible to do a parachute jump from that height, but definitely not possible to do a parachute jump or exiting out of a spacecraft. But you'll never be able to enter back in. At least relative to the Earth, you don't want to be zooming about too fast in just a spacesuit. Theoretically, once you're there, you can freefall for a bit and then float down. In the 60s, General Electric came up with a moose, or man-out-of-space-easiest, which was basically a foam-lined bag for the astronaut to be flung back to Earth in. It didn't go down too well. I'll be taking a slightly more awkward jump next week to find the answer to this question. Hi, I'm Jeff from the U.S., and I was once told that if a high-tension line, a 23 kV power line, fell across my car, it isn't safe to stay inside because the tires aren't enough to insulate it and the tires and vehicle would catch fire. I was told that I had to open the car door and jump out, keeping my feet together, and then hop away from the car, still with my feet right together, because the voltage gradient present in the earth would be enough to shock me if my feet touched the ground at separate distances. I've often wondered since if this was really true. And then I'll be investigating a seemingly endless source of power. Hello, my name is Brian Starkey, and my question is, from where do permanent magnets get their energy or power? I can put a fridge magnet on a fridge, and it seems as if it will stay there forever with no sign of any power source. Also, if I try to push the light poles of two bar magnets together, my arms will grow tired long before the magnets grow weak. Yet again, there is no power or energy source. Can we not harness this invisible and seemingly endless source of energy? Do you stay in the car or hop out of it? What can you power with a magnet? Drop me a line or a new question to question of the week at thenakedscientist.com or scribble your ideas in our forum. That's www.thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. That's all for this week's question of the week. Back to you guys. Thanks, Diana. 
Now, can you imagine skydiving from 110,000 feet? Joe Kittinger was the first person to try something like that. He jumped from an air balloon at nearly 75,000 feet. And apparently, when you first start to fall when you're that high, you actually can't feel that you're falling. And the only way you can tell is because your balloon seems to be racing away from you upwards. And we also had some great answers to this on our forum this week, including one from Clem Johns. And Clem Johns said that it, does it count as a landing if the astronaut hits the ground as a fine black powder and a mixture of gases? Um, you can read them all on thenakedscientist.com slash forum. You just have to have a look for the bit at the top of the forum, which has got a big question mark and says question of the week. That's where they all are. But what is the best way to escape from an electrified car? Let us know by emailing question of the week at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you, Ben. Right, time to go back to the Market Square in Cambridge, where earlier this week Ben and Dave were experimenting with something smooth and something rough. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. We've managed to enlist the help of two Christmas shoppers to help us demonstrate how you can fool your senses. So who have we got helping today? I'm Emma. I'm Naomi. OK, then, Emma and Naomi. Well, if you come over here, we've got an experiment set up here, and Dave will walk you through what you need to do. OK, so we've got some carpet here and a really smooth piece of plastic. Um, I want Emma to just rub your hand, one hand on the carpet, one hand on the plastic, about 10 or 15 times. How does it feel? One feels like plastic and one like carpet. It's office carpet that we've got, the sort of rough, really hard-wearing stuff. Can you feel how rough it is? Yeah, definitely a difference. Dave, how long do people need to try this out for? Yeah, sort of 10 or 15 strokes backwards and forwards would be ideal. So not too long, really? Not too long, no, it should be fine. OK, so Emma's probably about there now. When I say I want you to rub both hands on the paper at the same time and say how it feels. OK. Go for it. What can you feel on the paper? Um, there's definitely a difference. You can feel, like, the roughness of the carpet and the difference. The paper feels a lot smoother comparatively to it on the plastic. So for one hand, the paper feels rough, and for the other hand, the paper feels quite smooth? Yeah. And uh, I'd just like you to have a close look at the paper and make sure that we're not cheating. This isn't a special sheet of paper. Nope, just a normal sheet of paper. Fantastic. Well, Naomi, would you like a go? OK. <laughs> so if you want to give this a try at home, you need to find a piece of carpet or something similarly rough and something really smooth. Now, you could use a mirror or maybe a plastic tray. What we're using is a plastic pocket that you might find in a filing cabinet, so that's nice and smooth, and just an ordinary sheet of paper. And as Dave said, rub your hands on the rough and smooth surfaces for about 15 times or so, maybe a couple of minutes at most, and then rub it on the paper and see how the paper feels. So, Naomi, are you ready? Yeah, I think so. OK, so tell us what the paper feels like. Oh. Uh, oh, it's weird. It feels really smooth for one hand. And, oh, it's really weird. OK, now, do you have any idea what's going on here? Um, no. <laughs> we probably should do, but... No idea. So, Dave, clearly this feels like a magic trick, but really this is just an ordinary sheet of paper. So what is going on? Well, your senses tend to measure things relatively rather than absolutely. This is really useful if you're in a room and say, say it's a warm room. If your nerve cells were always telling you, it's a warm room, it's a warm room, it's a warm room, you'd suddenly get attacked by the tiger jumping the window and you wouldn't notice it. So your nerves, instead of being distracted all the time by measuring the temperature, once the temperature stops changing, then they quieten down. As if there's a change, there's a sudden burst of activity and after a while it'll calm down, the nerves will fire less often and they will stop telling your brain about the temperature so much. So, for example, our ancestors in the jungle would get used to the smell of plants and trees and soil and all that, but then when the smell of smoke comes in, it's a new smell, it's a different smell, so the nerves fire off for that one. 
Yeah, and that's exactly the reason why if you walk into someone's room, you can suddenly smell something different. After 10 or 15 minutes, you get used to it and you don't notice it anymore. Well, what does this have to do with rubbing a piece of paper? Well, you actually sort of have a sense of vibration. So your two hands, your hand rubbing the carpet will get used to it vibrating a lot and won't sell any signals if it's for a lot of vibration. Your hand, which is rubbing on the smooth surface, is used to no vibration. And when you rub them both on the same surface, the one which is used to lots of vibration thinks, all oh, this is smooth. The one which is used to no vibration at all thinks, all oh, this is rough. And so you get two different signals from your two different hands. Fantastic. Well, what did you think of that, then? That was really cool. <laughs> This is the sort of thing that I would class as a party drink. Do you think you'll show people over Christmas? Uh, I'm sure I'll tell people about it, definitely. (laughs) Thank you ever so much for joining in. You're welcome. Thanks so much. So there you go, a new party trick to show how you can confuse your own senses without the need of eggnog, mulled wine or anything like that. That's it for Kitchen Science this week. Dave will be live in the studio for Kitchen Science with you next week. And that really is a fantastic one to try out. Do it at your office party. It really is great how confused your senses are. And when your hands disagree with each other, that is really strange. And next week, Dave is going to be in the studio to show how an ordinary household object can keep your windows, mirrors and even your eyeglasses mist-free. So no more steaming up after a shower. Sounds saucy. Thanks, Ben. (laughs) Right, well, that's pretty much it for this week. I just have to say thank you very much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. And a big thank you to the contributors this week. We had Ruth Itzaki from the University of Manchester, Dr Peter Nestor from Cambridge University, and Dr James Ost joined us from Portsmouth University. Also, our wonderful production team, as always, Ben Vowsler, Mira Synthalingham, and Diana O'Carroll deserve a very special mention. Thank you to them. They do a great job. Next week, it's our science Q&A extravaganza. Every science question you ever wanted the answer to answered as far as we can try within the scope of one hour. So all you have to do is send your questions to me now, chris at thenakedscientist.com, and we'll try and include them in next week's show. In the meantime, have a great week and see you next week. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.